In Daniel chapter 3, verse 17 through 18, it says, If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Today we learn the king thinks about cutting people into pieces a lot. Seems weird. This is day six. Welcome to the Journey Through Daniel podcast, where every day we set aside space in our lives to experience God's Word. Together we'll discuss the content and meaning of each passage and how the book of Daniel can help us understand more about who God is and the story He's writing for each of us every day. Welcome back to day six of the Journey Through Daniel podcast. I'm here once again with Brendan Lang. Hey, hey. And Kelly Kang. Hi authors of a commentary in our journey books. Brendan, where are you from? Why are you asking me this? Because, like, what if we have new people who don't know do. anything about... Look, people don't care. <laughs> I <laughs> care, Brendan. Brendan well, Kelly you know has never from. heard where I'm you're from. from Brooklyn, Iowa. Brooklyn, Iowa. Yeah. And Brooklyn, Iowa is a booming town full it, of it skyscrapers. Is, it is growing. Great rap. Last time I went there, it's like there are all these new houses in this part of town that you know I hadn't seen. There's a Brooklyn Bridge. We developed in the last couple of years. And you grew up on a dairy farm. Yep. And just, I think we've covered this this season already that your dad owns a meat locker. The thing I like about you being from Iowa is just how humble you are. Like literally and not, metaphorically. But not everybody from Iowa is humble. Wait. No, definitely no. not. But Iowa's got some good things they're sending out apparently. Sure. Some very humble people. I try. Brendan's favorite memory is his pet when he was a kid, Jenny the cow. <laughs> who Did won. you name her Jenny? Yeah, who named her Jenny? I don't know who named her Jenny. It was just, you don't want me to really get into this, like the process. So there's a process for naming? like Well, no, but like how cows are identified and things like that. And like, we are, you're opening a can of worms that I don't think you want to get into. So there I are worms. I think I want to. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't. You don't want me to talk about this. All right. Well, Jenny right. is yeah, legendary. She is. For sure. Kelly, you're actually from New York. I am. But not Brooklyn. Not Brooklyn. Upstate, eastern New York in a place called Schenectady. Schenectady? <laughs> Nailed it. Are there any vowels in that? <laughs> yeah, there's there's a few E's. It reminds uh, me of like Matt a. Skripsinski, like one of our friends who has one vowel in his 13-letter name. Anyway, go yeah. ahead. Maybe easier like the smaller within Schenectady that I'm mm. from is Niskayuna. Is that easier to say? Oh, no. What kind of names I are want, these? I kind of want Brendan. These all Native American Niskiyuna. names? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Nice. I have a question for for you guys today. Let's hear it. What's the hottest you've ever been? I can go first. Let's hear it. Let's just give you time. Yeah. One time I shot a wedding in Tucson in July. Mm. And I just don't recommend it. If it wasn't for a family member, I would not have done it. Yeah. But it was like 119 degrees or something that day. Mm. And it's it just hot degrees. and humid. And it was insane. I remember drinking like two gallons of water in a yeah. course of like eight hours and just still was not enough. Wow. But what about you guys? The hottest I remember ever being, and this is a long time ago, I remember being in Dallas, Texas in 96, 97, something My like that. My dad lives in Dallas. Oh, really? Yeah. Sorry. Well, I guess Keep pretty going. hot down there. <laughs> My family, we were vacationing and there was one day, I just remember walking across a black parking lot on my way to like Six Flags. And I mean, it was the same thing. It was like 118, 100, I don't know, ridiculously hot. And humidity is bad, but I mean, dry heat's just as bad sometimes it yeah, seems like. Yeah, for sure. Once you when get up to that, like once you're at that level. One teen. It doesn't matter. Worst, yeah. It just, mm. what are we doing here? Yes. So, yeah. Who settled here? It's yeah. kind of like how I feel about winter in chicago sometimes like mm -hmm. who like lived through this winter and was like this is a good idea let's mm -hmm. set up shop yep but you kelly 
That's a great question. I feel like I overheat a lot. And so they're not really like significant memories because I just feel like I get warm all the time. (laughs) (laughs) But probably the hottest I've ever been was when I was in India one summer and it's like 110 degrees or something. But it's like so hot that it was customary, at least in like the town that I was in, that everyone just like goes inside midday because it's just like even for them, like it's just Mm -hmm. too hot. So everyone goes inside, just like takes a break from the day. That I liked the idea of. Didn't mind that so much. Siesta. Well, siesta, yeah. 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 That sounds like, nice. Yeah, we're gonna take a break. It's just too much. Once it gets to that 120 range mm. with humidity, there's nothing you can do. The India heat is mm. no joke. Mm-hmm. And then they feed it to you too. Yeah. It's just it's good stuff. Everything's hot. Well, it's great. I feel like we got nothing on what's gonna happen today in the reading. You know what? It gets hot and Nebuchadnezzar gets hot too. There's a fun kind of wordplay in our reading. We can talk about that later. Oh wow. Multiple levels of heat. We're bringing the heat today. Brendan, why don't you kick us off with our commentary? Day six. Faithfulness in the Midst of Uncertainty In today's reading, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego continues. As we've seen, they have been accused of refusing to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Now they are threatened with death in a blazing furnace. The passage begins with a stunning statement by the three men. They say in Daniel 3, 17-18, If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, We want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. What's remarkable about their response is the faithfulness they show in the midst of uncertainty. They recognize that God has the power to save them. They also recognize that God might choose not to save them. And in that place of unknowing, they still resolutely declare that they would never submit to the corrupt agendas of evil rulers. In the end, God intervenes in a dramatic fashion. He sends one who looks like a son of the gods to deliver them from the flames. This is the first of several times in the book of Daniel that God sends a supernatural being to save his persecuted people from suffering. However, this story should not be read as a guarantee that God will save us from whatever imminent harm is looming on the horizon. In fact, the latter half of Daniel describes how God's people undergo enormous suffering at the hands of a 2nd century BC tyrant known as Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Daniel 11.33 tells us that some who would choose to be faithful in the midst of Antiochus's abominable policies would fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. God would eventually raise up these faithful followers over their oppressor, but their deliverance would come in the afterlife. While the story shows us God's ability to save, it's more of a challenge for us to be faithful even when we don't know the outcome. As followers of God, we don't do what is right because life will be easy for us or because God will save us as a result. We do what's right because it's what God calls us to do. For day six, we're reading Daniel chapter three, verses 16 through 30. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. 
Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Kelly, want to read our reflection questions for day six? Question one. What does it say about God that he sent a representative to join Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in their place of suffering? Question two, what recent or current situation are you facing which requires faithfulness without certainty? What right thing is God asking you to do? Man, Nebuchadnezzar really likes cutting people into pieces and breaking their houses into rubble. Except for the furnace, I feel like we just keep seeing him wanting to cut people up. What's his deal? What's his deal? Why is he like cutting people into pieces? Because he knows that'll terrify people into submission. I guess so. Yeah, I it mean, was more common back then, though, right? As like a form of punishment. Like, maybe not even back then. I mean, there are probably places around the world where this continues to be a form of punishment. <laughs> True. But yeah, I mean, it was in that culture. This was a way you could get people to do what you ask. And I guess it shows power. Yeah. You know, I find it interesting that this pastor says, even if the Hebrew boys, because we were calling them the Hebrew boys, okay. Stephen Kelly. Yes. I like I that. I calling them the Hebrew like boys, it. so that's what we're going to call them. Just easier than trying to say all their names. But I love that they say, even if we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. And that's like in reference to if they don't get saved, which is funny because mm-hmm. like if they don't get saved, they're going to burn up. Yeah. So they don't have an opportunity to worship those gods oh. or, you know, I guess what they're saying is like, even as we're dying, yeah. we will not regret or wish that we had. Yeah. Yeah. Changed I think ways. it shows that like their hope isn't in life itself or living like their hope is in God. So it's like, oh, yeah, even if we are going to die, like there is no scenario that we want to compromise our morals or what we believe is right. Even if the outcome is that we're going to burn up, even if we know that right now, we will still choose that over worshiping your gods. It's quite a bit of dedication. Yeah. It's a big question for us, I guess. And Brendan, you kind of pose at the end, do we do what's right because we're afraid of the outcome or do what is right because we know what's right? But that's getting a little too heavy too fast. I have a bigger question. Let's hear it. Or less big question. Who's Antiochus IV Epiphanes? Oh, yeah. Just dropping these names on us. Who's this guy? I mean, we'll talk about him more later, but he's a second century king that really does a lot of these same types of things to Jews. And so I bring him up to say, what we see here in his story is an example of the way God can intervene and prove to be loyal on behalf of his loyal people, the way he shows up for people in the midst of their suffering. And he delivers them from the flames. He gets in the fire. He sends a representative to get in the 
the fire with them. But again, he delivers them before death. Now, later on, Daniel chapter 7 through 12, share very similar types of, well, they're not stories, they're visions and dreams, but they pick up on the same language, like this word harm that's used to talk about how the fire could potentially harm these guys. This is language used to describe what later symbolic sorts of beasts, Antiochus Epiphanes being represented by one of these beasts, what they can do to people. And so all that to say, these stories serve as sort of a, you might even say an illustration, an example of what the visions and dreams talk about for later centuries of Hebrew boys and girls. (laughs) Every using that sort of language. And so he's a guy who actually does, you know, murder, kill, persecute people who choose to be faithful to God. And God doesn't intervene in those situations. Hmm. He doesn't show up and save these people from death. And so when you read this line again, even if he does not, we want you to know that we will never serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Well, that's what people in later centuries confess. Antiochus Epiphanes kills them. And I think for us, sometimes we read stories like this and trust that God is always going to save us from from what's immediately on the horizon. We do believe that God is going to rescue us some way. His justice is ultimately going to prevail at some point at his appointed time, but it's not always on our timeline. It may not always be in the way that we want. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind as we read this story. It's not a promise that whatever thing you're facing, you're immediately going to be brought through it. Now, God sees it. God will enter into that suffering with you, but the victory that you're going to experience may not always be on the timeline that you would prefer and expect. Well, and like just to set the context back, we read this on Friday. You know, the reason that this is all happening is because Nebuchadnezzar has built this giant gold statue. Yeah. He wants everybody, well, not everybody, all the like prefects, people who work for him basically to come and worship this thing and show honor and favor in the way that he wants. And these three guys are like, no, I know this is not the right way to do this. Mm -hmm. We know that this is not the right thing to worship or the right thing to value. And so we won't. And so here we are. Why does Nebuchadnezzar have a giant furnace? (laughs) This is how he keeps his palace warm or this is just for throwing people into it? That's a good question. I mean, there's kind of debates about what's going on with this furnace. Some people say that it was the furnace used to build the statue. Yeah, that's a good. So that's kind of the way to think about this is if he's going to build a giant statue, you've got to have a giant furnace that you have the the ability to throw people. Yeah, exactly. So you can throw people into them as well. That could be what's going on here. That's an interesting metaphor if we continue that to the idea of like how impenetrable are these people compared to the gold that was very much a part of the statue. And so that's what's fascinating. And we're going to talk about this theme as well in future days. But the Bible teaches us that humans are made in the image of God. The word image, another way you could translate it is statue. In Hebrew, it's selim and Aramaic. It's a related word. And what Nebuchadnezzar constructs is a statue, an image that, of course, is made by human hands, not made by divine hands. And it can be melted just as easily as it's made. But what God shows here is he, again, intervenes on behalf of his image bearers, his statues. And no furnace, no fire that Nebuchadnezzar constructs can tear down the statue, can melt the statues that he's made. Is that what you were referring to when you said that Nebuchadnezzar is bringing some heat? Early? Well, no, but there's another great wordplay. Because if you look at verse 19, there are a couple of great wordplays actually in verse 19. It says, then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in his attitude the word translated there as attitude is again that same word translated elsewhere as image. It's salam. It's the Aramaic word. So there's this play on this word image, but there's also this play on the word heat. So it says his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. And it says then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. That word translated as was furious. It's literally an Aramaic. He was filled with heat. So he makes this furnace hotter by 
what he himself is getting hotter. What's happening to the furnace is reflected in his own attitude toward mm-hmm. them. And actually, we talk about this word image and statue and how he makes an image based off the image, we might assume, that he saw in his dream in chapter two. And the goal of this image is to destroy the image bearers that God has made, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But also that word image is translated a different way here when it says, and his attitude toward them changed. That word translated as attitude is again, that word statue image, his own image changed. So it's a battle of heat. You know, one of these is going to stand up to God's heat and one of them is going to stand up to Nebuchadnezzar's and which is which? That's the question. I think throughout, you know, we said we were going to do this. If you're joining us for the first time this week, we said we were going to put ourselves in both positions for each of these stories. So the question is, we can either be these Hebrew boys who stand up to Nebuchadnezzar or we can be Nebuchadnezzar in this situation. Or we can be the satraps, prefects, administrators, <laughs> or, or the jealous ones who turn them in. Yeah, yeah. or we can be the ones who uh, try to throw them into the fire and we die instantly. Yeah, right. <laughs> Lots of options. <laughs> but I think the interesting thing here is just to look at when things get heated, how do our image towards people change? Nebuchadnezzar, you know, when he has something that hits close to what he cares about and the pride that he has and something that he's done and he's built and the way that he sees how people should act. And then people come against that. Mm -hmm. His reaction to that changes him and changes his relationships with people. And I wonder how often we do that, even just as Christians. You know, how do we change just because our agendas are not seen by everybody else as the most important? Yeah, I think it's easy to look at Nebuchadnezzar and see that just in the last chapter, he was given this vision and interpretation of the statue and he knows the ending. He knows that the ending is it being destroyed, but he gets so focused on that one piece. And I think when you're reading it and you see it all on paper, it's easy to think like, how was he so stupid to like build a statue when he literally just had a dream where it was destroyed? But I think Mm -hmm. how often do we do the same things? We get so focused on the part that applies to us or the part that benefits us more or the parts that look more presentable or you could fill in the blank with a thousand things. But I think we do the same thing. We get so focused on that, that we forget the outcome or the bigger picture of it or how it affects other people. That's good. It's like he remembered the part of the dream where he was the head of gold. And so he Mm -hmm. goes ahead and makes a statue that almost is like a divine permission. Yeah. Yeah, Like, oh, I'm happy because look how God has blessed me. Right. And so I'm going to go ahead and make a full statue of gold that represents potentially me and ask people to bow down and submit to this image. And again, it just shows how short sighted he is that he's not paying attention to really what's going on. And we've been talking about this idea of what apocalypses are. And what he has in Daniel 2 is an apocalypse. He has a revelation and he doesn't have eyes that are open to see it. And I think it's interesting that, you know, he established these three dudes as like above all of Babylon. These guys are already in really high positions and it doesn't matter because he is so prideful and so sure of what he thinks they should be doing and how they should be acting that he's willing to kill them and just like throw them in a furnace, let them get burned up because that's how much pride he has and how set he is in his ways. Yeah, he can't have anybody act differently, especially, honestly, probably people who have that much authority, if they really had any sort of power over the other magicians and wise men or whatever that they were elevated over. He can't have anybody rebelling because if they do, if they rise up, if they say, we're not going to do this, then other people are going to join them. And so he tries to knock them off. And this is what sometimes people in power do is they recognize if there's someone who's going to disobey me, I need to do something about this so others don't do the same. And it's probably not looking like they're being thrown into a furnace, but they're definitely going to bring some heat against them. They're going to like put them in a position where they can't win or, you know, how does this look in the workplace or 
how does this like look in school or certain circumstances, it probably just means that it's going to be really uncomfortable for people. And people talk about that, like renewing fire, that fire that brings about new change, creation yeah. and change. And sure. that's kind of what this is. Like they're going through a sort of renewing fire, but what it does is it affirms their faith and affirms the God yeah. that, you know, was able to save them. It doesn't change them so much because they did have faith regardless of whether their lives are going to be lost. What it did is it changed Nebuchadnezzar yeah. by witnessing it. And it should encourage us. That's the point of the story. It's not like this is history. I mean, it's a fun sake. story. It's a fun we story. We got a veggie tales out of it. That's right. We got a lot of veggie tales out of this book. But the point of the story is to encourage us when we have these situations in our lives as well to stand up to the Nebuchadnezzars to say, you know what, I'm going to do the right thing no matter what you do to me because I trust that God is going to see it, that God in his own timing, in his own way, is going to bring justice. And what God calls me to do right now with this uncertain situation is to be faithful to him to do the right thing because that's what it looks like to be a follower of God. And so whatever situation we may be facing, whether it's some high level government position or whether it's just in the context of our family or workplace or whatever, we need to continually be loyal to God, do the things he calls me to do, even when we're facing down threats, even when we aren't sure what those with power and authority over us are going to do to us, we still need to do those right things because that's what he asks of us. I think these are big stories too. They seem like unattainable, but I think what you just named is really what we should take away from this. It's in the little things. It's every day. It's in our families. It's in the way that we conduct ourselves at work. There's an enormous amount of power in the little threats that we sometimes feel from others. And it guides the decisions we make every single day. And what if we didn't allow people to have that kind of authority and recognize that our true authority, our true sovereign, our true king is God alone. And so we're going to be faithful to him. Well, it's like what Stephen Kelly said on day five, you know, it's not like day one, they were thrown into the furnace. They didn't eat the food. And so these guys weren't built in a day. It was the little things that then pay off and build to the big things. Mm -hmm. And just in the arc of these people's stories and this story, which is it's a great narrative, but there are two sides you can take from it. And it is, are we the Hebrew boy? And do we need to remain faithful regardless of what harm might come to us because it's the right thing to do? Or are we the Nebuchadnezzars and either not make it about ourselves in the beginning? Or hmm. are we able to learn from our mistakes and see when the image bearers are standing up for the right reasons yeah. and see when God meets them? You talk about seeing ourselves in King Nebuchadnezzar and also, Brendan, you mentioned just the recognizing where authority comes from. And I think a big part of that is when you get in those positions of having power or having influence, it's not a one-time recognition of where yeah. our power actually comes from or where authority lies, like especially for Christians too. And you look at the end of chapter two, where King Nebuchadnezzar says that Daniel's God is the Lord of Kings and the yeah. God of gods. And then he turns around and throws <laughs> the Hebrew boys in the fire for worshiping that yeah. God. God of gods. And so I think it just is an important reminder that you can recognize God's goodness and turn around and forget it. And I think sometimes, especially for me, I like to think I'm immune to that. I like to yeah. think I'm a Christian, like, of course, I'm not going to forget. But do I recognize God as being the ultimate authority or am I looking for it other places? And I think I have to continually check myself. That's a daily surrender. That's the thing, like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they could have said, you know, we did the thing with the food and yeah. we've conducted ourselves this way. God knows our hearts and I don't want to get heated up. I don't want to die yet. I yeah. feel like I still have work to do, but that's not what they're called to. You know, it's every day yeah. they have to surrender and do it the right way. 
I love that. And we'll see it again in the next chapter yeah. where <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar again, like he has another dream, another vision of something very similar to a very big statue. And in the end, he again rebels. He acts in ways that are inconsistent with what God would ask of people who have power. And again, we're going to see him worship God. It's a lesson he has to learn over and over and over. And I think that's important for us because the truth is any Christian, like I would hope, <laughs> would recognize that God is our ultimate authority and we shouldn't abuse our power. We should elevate those who are in low positions. We should recognize the marginalized in our society, those who have been excluded. And this is the upside down kingdom, right? And this is what Christian leaders and politicians and teachers and preachers talk about all the time. But we don't always work out the implications of that for our lives. We well, that's don't harder. always. That's much harder. <laughs> yeah. And it, really what it takes is like an analysis of your whole life. Mm. What are all the relationships I have? And is it possible that in any of these relationships, I might be abused? using my authority. You can see it in other people. You can see when people abuse their authority. It's a lot harder to see when you're doing it. For sure. So that's what it takes. It's sometimes multiple times of learning where we have to step outside of ourselves. Maybe we have to be attuned to the words of other Christians. We need courageous Christians, especially to stand when up they to hurt us sometimes, you know, especially yeah. when those words are not what we want to hear. Yeah, we don't yeah. like feedback. And sometimes they won't give us feedback because they're afraid because we might yeah. cut them into pieces yeah. and, <laughs> you know, burn down their houses. And in to rebel. <laughs> to rebel. Into rebel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we need courageous Christians who will stand up to us and any other people who claim to follow Christ who have some sort of authority. We need people to stand up and be courageous. And we need to have ears that are receptive to feedback and willing to change. I think that is one thing that stands out to me about King Nebuchadnezzar's example is that he has a willingness to admit that he was yeah. wrong. Even though he has to keep learning yeah. this lesson, he still, in that brief moment at the end of each chapter, does exhibit some humility in recognizing he's wrong and yeah. adjusting. And I think that's actually something positive we can learn from of putting our pride aside and recognizing when we're wrong and yeah. admitting that we made a mistake. And I think that's really hard to do and has to go hand in hand with what you're saying of when you do get feedback and things like that, not being defensive, being okay with changing your view or changing the mm -hmm. way you are doing something. I think that's the example of leadership that we have in this book too. You know, you can lead from below the Hebrew boys and Daniel and you can lead up or you can lead from the top. And, you know, you have the example of both and the way to do both. And we need to look at ourselves and say like, you know, as leaders, are we leading well from the top through humility, through understanding people's position before we put them in the furnace? And the other thing we haven't named here too is for those people who are not Christians and don't understand and all this weird barrier language that we've created to talk about all this stuff. What you need to take from this is you're probably in the fire or you will be in your life. That's just how life works. You go through different trials and difficulty. And the thing that we need to take from it is this idea that God is going to meet us in that. And that's one of the discussion questions today. It's kind of where I want to land is, you know, what does it say about God that he sent a representative to join the Hebrew boys in their place of suffering? It's the story of God. It's the story of Daniel. It's not the only time in Daniel where we see something like this. We're going to see it multiple times. And it's what we see ultimately in the story of Jesus. Jesus, who identifies with one of the figures that we're going to read about later in the book of Daniel, the son of man who suffers on behalf of the suffering people of God. This is what Jesus does. He embraces this role as the son of man because that's what is in his character to do. It's what's in God's character. He's a God who sees his people, who sees all people, 
who sees people who are hurting, who sees people who are suffering, who listens to their cries and responds. Again, like we've said, it doesn't always happen on the timeline we would like. You know, that's up to God. And there are probably reasons we'll never understand for why God doesn't intervene on the timeline that we would prefer. But we have to recognize, we have to understand that God does see our situation and he's willing to get into it. And that's what this is all about is he sends a representative who gets in the flames. He's going to send an angel who gets in the lion's den. He's going to send a son of man to absorb the beating of the beast. This is what God does because he doesn't want to leave his people alone. If he's asking his people to be loyal to him, if they're going to be loyal, loyal to him, then he's always going to be loyal to them and meet them where they are. That's what it looks like to have a covenant relationship where we are his people. He is our God. We are united. And so that looks like when we're suffering, God suffers as well. Thanks for joining us today for the Journey Through Daniel podcast. If this is your first time, so glad that you checked us out. To check out even more resources, children and family resources, and ebooks for all ages, visit our journey page at willowjourney.org. And follow us for updates at Willow Creek NS on Instagram. If you have questions or would like to learn more about the ministries of Willow Creek Community Church, check us out at willowcreek.org. We'll see you next time.